I've been thinking uh, just for a little while, as I mentioned, I'm really in a series right now, just some stuff that's kind of been, been on my heart uh, about the, the danger of envy. Last week, we talked about the danger of sloth, and I was just thinking about the danger um, of envy that is something that, unfortunately, I think is more prevalent than ever for us because we constantly have the ability to compare ourselves. And the problem is we're often comparing our lives to other people's highlights, which is really not a, a great thing. But we have the ability to kind of constantly uh, be going uh, to that space. And I've just been convicted about how, how dangerous that is. So I want to talk about it for a little bit. When I was in elementary school, uh, I had a sleepover at my friend's house, which was right next to our house, which uh, was super close to my sister's room. And so she heard everything that was happening that night. And luckily, it was elementary school, so it wasn't too embarrassing uh, what we were saying. But she told me uh, when I came back, she's like, I heard something that you said. And I said, really, what is it? And she said, I heard you say to everybody who was there, probably about 15 people at this sleepover, who do you guys think is the best baseball player in this room? And after a, a pause of about 30 seconds, she heard me say, yeah, I think it's me. I am pretty sure it's me. I think that is a, such a bad brag. It's not even a humble brag. It's just like, that is just like bragging. And it's very funny because there are several people in that room who turned out to be way better baseball players than me. It's possible I was the best at that given moment, but I don't really think so. And then I look back on that and laugh and think about how at one point in my life that mattered. At one point, like it made a difference and I, I cared and I had aspirations to one day be a major league baseball player. And the problem is, I think we often can be doing things or living for things that when we look back on it, we're like, why did I even care? Like, why did I care what kind of car I drove? Why did I care so much about the house that I lived in? Why, why did I care so much about whatever it is that we can do. And oftentimes, as we look around and think about our lives, we can get our value and our worth by comparing ourselves to others. I have a better car, I have a better situation, or, you know, my child behaved a little better, at least for that five minutes. You know, all of these things, like these things that we can easily say, like, oh yeah, well, I'm a little bit better off, or how am I doing as I look like to the right and the left? How am I supposed to understand where my value is in the world. And I just have to say, that's extremely damaging for all of us. We very simply need to understand, like, we are loved by God, and that is our identity. Because if you're constantly looking to the right or, or to the left, like, it damages who you are, and then it makes you feel like you're in competition with the world, a competition that like, we just don't really need. Pastor Andy Stanley says the thing that we can constantly do is we can live in the land of Ur. Like as long as I'm rich-er or I'm skinny-er or I'm, you know, I'm okay with some people having a little bit of success or whatever, but as long as I'm a little bit more-er, then I'm good. And the problem is it's just, as Solomon would say, a chasing after the wind and there's just no wind in comparison. The book of Ecclesiastes is, is written either by Solomon or some other king who has had all these great profound experiences. And think for a minute about who it is that you would be super excited if they were writing a memoir. Like you were very excited, you couldn't wait, you slept out in front of Barnes & Noble if there was a Barnes & Noble anymore because you were super excited to hear what like this person said about their life. Solomon is basically telling us in the book of Ecclesiastes, trust me, I've tried it all and way more than you ever could. 
You want to talk about women? Man, I mean, I've had hundreds of wives. You want to talk about money? I've had unbelievable wealth. You can spend your time going after all this stuff, or Solomon can just tell us, like, hey, there's a cheat code. Just, I tried it all, and trust me, it didn't satisfy. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, Solomon says this, I saw all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And I think about this, and this was written likely around 3,000 years ago. And sometimes I think about, how, I mean, what were they envious of? I mean, how, how did, you know, just, when you look back on the simplicity of what life was like back then, you think it must have been a, a simpler time, must have been a little bit easier. But this has driven humanity forever. One person's envy of another. And Solomon says, as he says, actually 39 times throughout this book, this is meaningless. The actual Hebrew word that's used there is hevel, which is probably translated a little bit more crass than meaningless. If you're honest, this just basically says it's nothing. I looked out over all of what I was experiencing and all these people were chasing after others. And it's meaningless. There was a historian named David Wells who looked at obituaries from 1786 to 1990 in the Salem Evening News in Salem, Salem Massachusetts. He found that in the early obituaries, many of them from the 1780s on into the 1800s, most of uh, the 1900s, honestly, it talked very little about what the person did for a living. It talked about the person's commitment to their family, their integrity, their um, community that was around them, what they believed about God. And he said it's only in recent history, the last 50 years or so, that it talks more and more about what the person did. Now that is like a central feature of, of most obituaries and often doesn't talk about character at all. It generally says, you know, this person died from this place, they did this job, and they had, they're survived by these people. It often doesn't talk about their character or integrity at all. Unfortunately, it seems like more and more we are building our lives and our identities around what it is that we do or how much stuff we have or accumulating these things. It seems like more and more we are in that space. And as you think about that, like how am I supposed to respond? Solomon continues and says this, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves as he continues this conversation. So the fool just goes like, all right, I'm just opting out of everything. I'm just, I'm just not going to engage. I'm not going to be part of it. I'm just going to like not use my talents and gifts. And we've seen people who've done that. But that's not what Solomon, that's not what scripture encourages us to think about, live to your potential, use your gifts. Like your gifts are necessary and important. Your world, the world needs your gifts. Don't hide your stuff in the sand. Like you need to use your talents in the world. But at the end of the day, when you're acknowledging like at the end of like a hard work day or like you've used your gifts or you're, you're spent because of the time that you've spent with, with like the family that's around you, the people that you are pouring into, at the end of the day, as you consider your life, don't get your value from looking to the right or to the left. 
Don't get your value from looking at all the other people who are around you, who are in your field or your industry or who you're somehow in competition with. Just turn your heart and your life over to God and say, I have used my gifts and my talents and my abilities to try and bless the world and I'm going to allow the identity that Christ gives me to be my measurement. I'm going to live for the applause of heaven. Because ultimately, that's what helps. Ultimately, that's what moves us to be more and more the people that we want to be. Solomon continues and says, There was a man who was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. There's a man who's just working and working and working and working and doing all of these things and using his gifts in the world, and then he realizes, if I'm leaving all this wealth behind from all this work that I'm doing, you know who gets it? My dumb son. We all know people who've been ruined by some money, right? We know some people who you like think about and like, you want to leave a legacy uh, for your kids, perhaps. But who gets it in the end? And as nice as wealth can be, like some people who get it, like they just messes them up more than you could possibly imagine. So this one who is working and working and working has this moment, like, why am I doing all this? Can you ask yourself that question? Why am I doing all this? Because there's just no win in comparison. There's no win in looking to your right and to your left and getting your value from there. I love how Dave Ramsey, the financial guru, says this. Uh, He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And this isn't, if this isn't the American dream, I don't know what is. <laughs> like, hey, come look at all the stuff I have. Come enjoy all the things that I have. Where are you going to get your sense of value and worth? As some of you know, uh, right before COVID started, I started doing some stand-up comedy, and some of you guys got to go, so thank you for, for your support. And please don't clap for that. Please don't clap for that. Um, and it was, it was a good experience, but people would ask me after it was over, like, what was it like? Were you nervous? And the, the way that I would talk about it is the nice thing about these very low levels of comedy where I was at. I was not making any sort of money or anything. It was one of those where it's like, just bring your friends and as long as they buy some drinks, you can do this. Like, uh, but it wasn't like, send me a demo and let me see how you're doing. It's just like, literally just sign up and they don't really care as long as you're off the stage in seven minutes. So it's not some sort of like high thing that I got to do. But the way that I would, would say it is like, trust me, any of you could do it because especially at these low levels of comedy, there's always somebody who's just terrible. Like there's somebody who 
It's like seven minutes of awkward. And in fact, the first time I did it, uh, I'll have to tell you what happened, but this woman was up there and just the whole room was ready for her to get off the stage. And they basically had to drag her off the stage. And then I had no idea what to do. And it's like, and next up is Brian Shackman. And I walked up there after that was done. But as people would ask me about that experience, like that's what I'd say, like, well, there's gonna be somebody who you're better than. And that makes it all right. And I think oftentimes, like, as we think about life, like, we're just, you know, comparing ourselves and going to that space, and that is where we get our value and our sense of worth from. And it's all right sometimes to, like, because it's almost, it's human nature to have those moments. But at the end of the day, can you say, like, my identity is with God, and that is the most important thing, and there is nothing that I can do that will make God love me any less. And that's great news. This is who I am. I'm deeply loved by God. And so I'm not going to look to the right and to the left to try and get my sense of value or worth because that's going to constantly get me to like go to this place or that place or try to please that person. And it's just exhausting. I think the best way that you can try to move to freedom in this is to Strive for a deep sense of celebration. Because I know there's been times, I mean, this is like pastor confession, and you're probably thinking, wow, I can't believe he would say that. There's been times in my life when somebody around me or in my circle has failed. And I've had that moment of satisfaction, and I hate it in myself. And part of it is because I know that I'm a broken person, and I know that I'm capable of some of the same things. Could we strive to just rid ourselves of that? That when somebody struggles, we just, you know, we're just we're thinking like, firstly, oh, man, I, I wish, I just hope they're okay. And then when somebody has something that's great, can we figure out how to just rejoice and celebrate with them? to be just as excited for them that you know, they got the new car and they have the new car smell for a while or they got that promotion or whatever. Can, can we just learn to say, wow, I'm so happy for you. Toward the end of the book of Romans, Paul is writing uh, to this church and in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who and one of the great, powerful things about Christian community is we hear stories like Denise's and it challenges us to think about how we can start over wherever we happen to be. And then once Denise finishes that degree, we're going to have a party and celebrate with her. Because we, as a community, like we aren't like, oh man, she's getting her teaching credentials. Man, I really wish I had that. We just go, that's amazing. And that's awesome. How can we celebrate you when you reach that goal? We need to be fresh in celebrating to look around in our world and not think that we're in competition with everybody. Because one of the issues with technology is we have the ability to not just keep up with the Joneses in our neighborhood. We have the ability to keep up with every Jones we've ever known. Can you celebrate 
and say, you know, praise God that you accomplished that. I'm going to take some time out of my busyness and my schedule to just celebrate you because that is so awesome. Because I know when I have those moments in my heart that I hate, that I go, oh, I can't believe I had that thought. Like, I, I, just, I want to have like five times where I'm like, I just, I, I celebrate you. I'm so happy for you. I'm proud of what you've achieved. Solomon continues this thought, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And generally, we read this passage at weddings. And, you know, like, does anybody have a reason why these two shouldn't be together today? We read this passage in that context. But the context of this passage is community. Solomon is, is saying, like these people, like, I'm looking around and everybody's just chasing after the wind, comparing themselves to each other. But isn't it better when you have somebody who's like on your side and rooting for you and cheering you on when it's time to celebrate? And then you have people who are going to lift you up when you fall down. This is really not a passage about like romantic love. This is a passage about the love of a community, people who will celebrate with you when you need to celebrate. And you aren't in competition. Because if you consider yourself to be in competition with the whole world, you're going to lose. And if you have this view of God, that it's all about you grabbing what you can, then you have this scarcity mentality that there's not enough good for you in the world. So you need to worry. You need to watch out. You need to make sure and get yours. Can you believe there's enough good in the world? Can you believe there's enough love for you just as there's enough love for others? And this is a revolutionary idea that we need to come to again and again because there's simply no win in comparison. And think about the world that Jesus walks into. Jesus walks into a world that I would say uh, is probably more segregated than our society is. It's more... Um, structured and there's more things that our people are just trying to hold their power and that still is an issue in our world today. But back then there was a philosopher named Cicero, a Roman philosopher who just 40 years before the time of Jesus is assassinated and he says rank must be preserved at all costs. That our whole society is built on like this person being above that person and like rank must be like if, if you lost that and you would lose the whole structure of society. It would just all collapse. So Cicero says, like, it must be preserved at all costs. This is the world that Jesus walked into. And there was, before that, a philosopher named Aristotle, who was around 200 years before the time of Jesus. And Aristotle says this. This is what a good person is, according to Aristotle. He despises honor by the common man. Don't care about what the other like, small people think. He indulges in conspicuous consumption, for he likes beautiful and useless things, since they are better marks of independence. Sounds like Aristotle thinks a hipster is the perfect person. Like, just, you've made it. If you can just waste stuff and just show off to other people how wasteful you can be. You've made it. 
if you can do that. And Jesus walks into a world like that. And again, our world is still very much like that. And he tells a story about if you go to a wedding. And if you went to a wedding or a party or a feast in that time or in that place, you would sit in order of rank and importance. Now think about that. It just stresses me out, like thinking about planning a party and trying to rank everybody who was coming to your party. Like how many feelings would get hurt? Like, all right, she's a CEO and he's a producer. Like, how am I supposed to sit these people? You know, how to, and like, all right, like, sorry, but you're the least important person here. So go sit here. And Jesus says, like, it would be better for you if you show up to that party and you, even though perhaps you know that you're a little bit higher on the list, you go sit at the back and the party planner comes behind you and says, hey, you know, just FYI, like you're actually the second most important person here. This whole thing sounds very awkward, but that was how it was. And Jesus says, it would be better for you if you, you know, you're sitting in a seat reserved for someone who is lowly and you get called up to the front, like that's going to be pretty nice as opposed to the other thing. Hey, you know, you're sitting in the third most important seat and you're actually 15th. So if that just stresses you out, just thinking about that party, we can thank Jesus for like eliminating that in the world because that sounds miserable. Because in a world like that where Cicero said rank must be preserved and Aristotle said, you know, just if you're elite, just like waste stuff. Like that's what you should do to show exactly how elite you are. Jesus comes into the world and he proposes a whole different system. And if you believe there should be a place where a homeless person comes and is just as valuable as a lawyer then you have Jesus to thank. If you believe that about the world, you have Jesus to thank. And in a world that was very much structured and about rank and order, all of a sudden, these communities start to form that make no sense because it isn't about rank and order and structure. It's people who are wealthy and elite hanging out with people who are homeless and prostitutes. Women flocked to early Christianity because it was one of the only places where they had unbelievable value and worth. For the first time in human history, it was said, like, women, you can be part of this and you have the, the same status and rank as a man. This is unbelievable news. Scott McKnight, in his book called The Fellowship of Difference, he says that there was a study by a British scholar who said if you would have thought about what these early house churches would have looked like, it would have been a gathering of about 30 people. And you likely would have had a very wealthy person who was funding much of it, like Lydia, an independent woman in the New Testament who sold purple cloth. You would have had someone like her or someone else who was elite and wealthy who would have had this gathering in his uh, or her home. And the makeup of the rest of this house church would have been a craft worker, some tenants who perhaps lived in this space with some slaves along with them, some members of the family who probably weren't too sure about this whole thing, but they were just sitting there to listen. A few migrant workers who would have been in town just for a while. And somebody who perhaps baked bread. 
few Jewish folks and a prostitute. And again, these communities that made no sense at that time just start to just appear after the life and ministry of Jesus. Because if you believe that your work ultimately isn't the most important thing about you, you can thank Jesus for that. Because we don't have to spend our lives defending our rank and status. We don't have to use our lives like comparing ourselves to the entire world to buy things that we don't even want to impress people that we don't like. Because Jesus has said the most important thing about you is my love and allow that to be your identity over and over again. And so these communities start to form that made no sense then. And if we're honest, still don't make a whole lot of sense now. Outside of church on Sunday morning, it's easy for you to spend time with people who have about the same level of education as you because the work that you're in probably requires about the same amount of time and experience. It's likely that you live among people who make about as much as you because you pay the same rent. It's likely that you, without intention, can just spend time around a lot of the people who just think exactly like you and live in echo chambers without ever experiencing those who might be different. But love, the love of Christ in Christian community draws us out and says, let's, let's come together and recognize that we aren't in competition because at the end of the day, there's gonna be stuff that you're living for, like being the best baseball player in the room that 25 years later, actually maybe a little more than that, but a, a few, few years later, just doesn't matter. So what would it look like for you to center yourself on the love of Christ and to look to your brothers and sisters in this room and to say to Denise, we can't wait to celebrate with you. To say to Nick, who we were worried about last week, Nick is like scared, <laughs> we were praying for you, man. We're so glad you're okay. Because a cord of two strands isn't easily broken. And when you have people who are fighting for you and who are there with you, we can all make it a lot farther. So we're gonna sing the hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. And I hope that as we sing that, we once again center ourselves on the love, life, and ministry of Christ, which defines all of us. May we surrender all the ways that we try to measure up. Because you can never do anything that will make Christ love you any less. Let's pray. God, may we in this moment surrender the ways that we can define ourselves, the things that we sometimes can hold on to and cherish that a few years from now we might look to and say, why did I care so much about that? Be with us as we center ourselves on your message and your love, something that immediately changed the world. 
because a world that was so focused on rank and structure immediately started to produce these little communities of people that just made no sense. May we live in such a way that makes no sense to structures and powers that exist like that. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen.